of levels of activity. Except when something is wrong, they're taking action. You're not born into apathy. You're not born into retreat. You're not even born into average. You're born at a massive action level. This was certainly true for me for the first 10 years of my life. Man, I was a nonstop massive action little freak. Except when I was sleeping, okay, I was tripping all the time. Like most kids, I was full out all the time with people frowning and hinting that maybe I should bring it down a notch or two. In some cases, many notches. Hey, did that happen to you? I bet it did. Did you do it to your kids? Have you done it to them? Have you killed your kids? Have you told them to retreat, be average, back off, be seen and not heard? See, until adults started telling you otherwise, you didn't know anything but massive action. Even the most basic elements of this universe in which we live support massive amounts of action. Dive beneath the surface of this ocean, which I would tell everybody to have that experience. You're going to see constant, massive, unlimited amounts of massive actions, of activities, like everywhere. Just beneath the crust of the planet, on this planet on which you walk every day, the movement is unbelievable. Massive levels of action taking place every single second of every single day. Look inside of an ant mound or in a beehive, and you're going to see colonies of living beings generating massive amounts of action in order to ensure their survival into the future. You know, the ant hill, the beehive, Underneath the crust of this planet and below the sea level, there aren't any psychiatrists telling you to back off, man. There's no medication. Baby, it's full out. Go for it. Kill it. Massive action. My dad was a very hard worker and very much a disciplinarian. And he was definitely willing to take massive action. Unfortunately, he died when I was 10 years old, which really hammered into me. I mean, this loss hammered me big time into a retreat. Oh, my gosh. That's a big loss at 10. I look back now and realize this event, I begin to retreat from areas of life in which I needed actually to take more action. Meanwhile, at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, I was expending a lot of energy in areas that really shouldn't have received any of my attention. Later in life, it was drugs, alcohol, wasting time, games, whole list of useless activities, damaging, dangerous, but I was taking massive action. This continued through high school, then college. Man, I accumulated a few more losses along the way, lost an older brother when I was 20, lost some girlfriends along the way. I continued to progressively retreat from those things that were good for me and continued concentrating my massive action on destructive areas. I wasn't necessarily lazy or unmotivated, even though people would have said that about me, but I wasn't. I was taking massive action in some areas, but completely retreated in others. Look, I just simply didn't have the proper direction and was being misinformed and encouraged not to attack life. I spent most of my time as a kid in classrooms, bored, without purpose, and then gravitated to areas of life which I could expend a lot of energy, have big experiences, but not produce constructive results. I think this experience is actually something that many people endure or experience sometime in their life. Some people in their mid-40s, later in life, early. It just happened to me early on to, to misuse my energy and resources. Now, as I mentioned in a previous chapter, I experienced a major wake-up call at the age of 25. I knew, I knew I had to get redirected or else I would pay the ultimate price, the big price. I made a decision to make the same commitment to the creation of success massive action as I had been to my destruction. Since it was already hard work, not succeeding, destroying myself, I just changed the focus. 
See, people used to say, man, you're not focused. I'd say, yeah, dude, but I am focused. See, I was just focused on something destructive. Everybody's focused, you know? I never procrastinated where I could take massive action, where I hadn't agreed on retreatment. I just changed my focus at 25. Despite the fact that my father had been gone for 15 years, he still left with me this strong sense of work, push, make it happen. He was a great role model for me. He believed in strong work ethic. He was willing to do whatever it took to provide for his family. My father worked from a place of duty. He went after success as though it was a calling, a responsibility, an obligation, and his duty to take care of his family. I'm sure he enjoyed the financial rewards and the sense of personal accomplishment that came with his achievements. However, it was clear to me that he thought it to be his responsibility to his family, me, his wife, his church, his name, even God. He just ran out of time, baby. The body couldn't handle it. Now, once I finally woke up from my period of misdirection and misinformation, I committed all my energy to my career. I basically dropped the destructive things and took all that energy and redirected it into one thing. I'm going to be successful. Ever since the age of 25, the one thing I did right, whether it was the first sales job I have or the first company I built, was I approached whatever the task was before me with unbelievable massive amounts of action. It was never retreat. It was never no action. It was never average levels of action. It was constant, persistent, immense attack on a target. And I was labeled, negatively labeled for this constant, persistent, immense attack. Massive action is actually the level of action that creates new problems. So that's what massive action is going to do. It's going to create new levels of problems. So if you ask me, Grant, what does massive action mean? Baby, massive action is when you create new levels of problems. And until you create problems, new problems, you're not operating at the fourth stage of action. For instance, when I started my seminar business at the age of 29, I employed the 10X rule. And I employed the 10X rule because I wanted to create a name for myself as somebody that was going to change selling for everyone. I was going to bring ethics to selling. I was going to bring a new wave of selling. Not all these things that you've read about in books about avoid, evade, manipulate, know their personality type, neuro-linguistic programming, and figure out, trick them. I wanted to create a new way to sell people. And I used the 10X rule to create a name for myself. I'd start my day at 7 a.m. or earlier in most cases, and I wouldn't get back to my hotel till 9, okay? I was with clients at 7 a.m. I'd get back to my room sometimes 9 and 10 o'clock at night. I spent the day cold calling. You understand cold calling? I'm calling on multi-millionaires. Didn't know my name. I didn't know their name. I didn't even know the receptionist I had to get through. I'm walking in cold and calling on these guys, and offering to do presentations for their sales and management teams. I'd visit as many as 40 organizations in a day. I was kicked out of 28 of them, okay? 12 of them would take my time. Six of them would throw me out after they heard what I had to say, and six of them would become interested. I remember once being in El Paso, Texas, a city where I've never been. I knew no one. I'd never, ever flown into El Paso. I don't even think I knew where it was at on a map until I went there. Within two weeks, I had seen every single business in that market. Although I was unsuccessful in making everyone in that market know me, I certainly secured more business by taking massive action than I would have otherwise. A real estate agent at the time had asked to travel with me because he was interested in the business I was building and what I was doing, and he wanted to observe firsthand how I was growing my business. After three days of shadowing me, 
He admitted, Grant, there's no way I can do this for another day. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, I can't even ride with you another day, dude. He's like, I'm only riding with you and I'm exhausted. And I said, you know what? I'm onto something, man. If I can operate at this level, I can smoke everybody. I then approached every day like my life depended on the actions I took. I wasn't the smartest. I didn't have any money. Nobody knew me. I'll outwork them. I'm just going to operate at 10x, massive levels of action. I refused to leave that city without knowing I had done everything possible to meet every business owner there and offer my services, introduce myself, and get to know their sales team. Calling on companies, Cole, taught me more about taking massive action and then grooving that discipline in that was natural to me anyway and natural to each of you than any other activity I've ever done and has proved more valuable to me in all my other ventures. See, when you're taking massive action, you're not thinking in terms of hours or calls. When you start operating at the fourth degree, your mindset shifts and so will the results. You'll end up instigating opportunities that you'll have to address earlier, later, and in a different way than you would on a normal day. So a routine day will become a thing of the past. You understand? See, when you start operating at Massive, you instigate situations. You, you, you trigger stuff and make things happen that the, you then have to say, oh, I got to be there earlier. I got to stay there later. The normal day just drops out. Routine things are a thing of the past. I continued this commitment to Massive Action until one day. It was no longer an unusual activity at Massive, but a habit. It was interesting to see how many people would ask me, Dude, why are you still out this late at night? What are you doing here on a Saturday? Why are you calling me on a Sunday? What are you doing calling on us, you know, this late in the day? You never quit, do you? I wish my people worked like this. I wish I could hire some people like you. What are you on? Yeah, I was on something, all right. Dude, I was on my only choice. My only choice was massive action because retreat and average was not acceptable. I was treating success as my duty, obligation, and responsibility, and massive action was my ace. It was my ace in a hole. Signals that you're taking massive action or having people comment upon your level of action and admiring you for that. However, you can't think in terms of compliments or how many hours you work or even how much money you're making when you're operating at this degree. Instead, you have to approach each day as though your life and your future depend on your ability to take what? Massive action. When I started my first business, I had to make it work. I didn't have a choice. Look, I, there was nothing else I could do for a living. There was simply no two ways about it. This is what I had to do. If I wanted people to know me, about me, about what I had created, about what I thought would actually help not two or three people, but millions of people, then I had to take massive action, period. The problem wasn't competition. My problem when I started my business was one thing, obscurity. People didn't know who I was. My problem wasn't money. My problem was obscurity. My problem wasn't time. My problem is you didn't know me. My problem wasn't the gas bill or the phone bill or the hotel I stayed at. My problem is, hey, they don't know me. And the only thing that keeps people from knowing you and your product and your idea is massive action. This has been the single biggest problem I've encountered in my whole business. Obscurity. Imagine from any entrepreneur's viewpoint, if they don't know you, they can't buy from you. If they don't know you, they can't hire you. This is every entrepreneur's biggest problem. Obscurity. People don't know you or they don't know your product or they don't know your idea. And the only way to burst through obscurity is by massive action. You can't just spin your way into people knowing you. I didn't have money. 
Most of you, you're not going to have the money to advertise. Truth is, advertising, big advertising, billboards, TV, and big radio campaigns are only available today to the biggest of companies. I didn't have any money to invest in advertising, so I spent all my energy on phone calls, mail, traditional mail, emails, cold calls, return calls, visits, more visits, personal visits, asking people for help, just massive, sick levels of action. See, this level of massive action may sound and is indeed exhausting at times. However, it will create more certainty and security I like certainty and security, don't you? I'd rather be exhausted and secure than rested and insecure and uncertain. And I promise you, massive action will create more for you than any education or training you will ever receive in your lifetime. Now, I've been called a lot of things due to my commitment to action. I've been called a workaholic, obsessive, greedy, never satisfied, driven, even a maniac. I've been labeled with all kind of labels, like you got a problem. Yet every time I've been labeled like this, it's always been by someone, interesting enough, that was operating at less than the fourth degree of action, massive action. Because people that operate at massive action don't label other people like something's wrong with them when they're operating at massive action. I've never had someone who is more successful than I am considering my excessive action to be a bad thing because successful people know firsthand what it takes to achieve that kind of success. Successful people don't see excessive levels of action as a problem. Only unsuccessful people do. They, the successful, know themselves how they got where they wanted to go and they would never identify massive action as undesirable in any way. Taking massive action means making somewhat unreasonable choices. And then, very important, you're going to follow it up with more action. This level of action will, I promise you, will be considered to be borderline insane by others. They're going to label you as something wrong with you. Wait for it. You're going to hear it. They're going to say that you've gone well beyond the agreed upon social normal. And, and remember, massive action is going to create new problems for you. You want new problems, don't you? Not old problems that are little and boring. Aren't you sick of those? But remember this. If you don't create new problems, baby, you ain't taking enough action. You want new problems. I want too many people at the seminar. I, 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 want, I want the room to be too small and people have to stand up. I want too much money. I want the taxes to be too big, okay? I like it. You want those kind of problems. You can also expect to be criticized. I promise you, you're going to be labeled by others when you start taking levels of action that are considered massive. The second you start hitting it big, I promise you, you will be judged by the mediocre. But look who you're being judged by. The mediocre, the average, the retreaters, the do-nothings. People who operate at the other three levels of action will be threatened by your activity level and will often make it seem somehow wrong, what you're doing is wrong, in order to make themselves okay. These people cannot stand seeing others succeed at these levels. They can't, even, they can't even stand seeing other people operate at those levels, much less succeed, and they will, consciously or unconsciously, do everything they can to stop you. Whereas a sane person would step up to your level. He'd admire you. Dude, that, I like that model, baby. Step up. A mediocre person, an average, a retreater, a do-nothing, will tell you, you're wasting your time, man. This isn't going to work in our industry. Hey, it's a turnoff to our clientele. You notice how they try to help you with that little covert, that voice of theirs? Hey, I'm just trying to help you, man. It's a turnoff, I'm telling you. You know, take it or leave it. No one wants to work with you anymore. You're not being a team player. 
Even management occasionally discourages the massive action employee from putting forth this kind of substantial effort. It's even management's doing this thing because they're threatened. See, so, so you're going to know you're stepping into the realm of massive action when, one, you create new problems for yourself, and two, when you start receiving criticism and warnings and supposed help from others, including family members. But stay strong, baby. Stay strong. You know the other three don't work. This activity of massive action will break you out of this hypnotic state of mediocrity that you've been taught to accept, that you're surrounded by every day. And in order to deliver at that level of massive action, you must take every opportunity that comes your way. For example, okay, my wife's an actress. I tell her all the time. I say, baby, say yes to any audition. She could, hey, I got this audition. I don't know if it's for, baby, say yes. Say yes to everything. Say yes to life. Say yes to the experience. I don't care if it fits you or not. Regardless of whether you're prepared, it doesn't fit you, do it anyway. It's better to suck and be seen than not be seen at all. But what if I bomb, she says. I tell her, Hollywood is filled with terrible actors. They're still working. You know why? Because they're being seen, man. Look, just get out there. Maybe they won't pick you for the part. Maybe you suck. You went up for it. They see that you're perfect for some other part. Maybe you suck and they're like, hey, that chick would be perfect for that person we need because that person needs to suck and she, she does it naturally. And my wife doesn't suck, but you know what I'm saying? You want to show up. The goal is to be seen, to be thought of, to be considered in one way or the other. Your only problem is obscurity. It's not talent. In order for the endeavor you've chosen to work out for you, you have to make constant, relentless effort and Massive action is the only level you want to operate at. Massive action cannot hurt you. It will always help you. This is also one place where quantity is more important than quality. Money and power follow attention. Money and power follow attention. So whoever gets the most attention is the person who takes the most action. And sooner or later, that person is going to get the most results, as long as they're constructive and not destructive. No one's going to come to your house and make your dreams come true, okay? It's not going to happen. Your dreams are not going to happen in your living room or your kitchen. you got to go out into the marketplace. No one's going to march into your company and make your products known to the world. In order to stand out from the crowd, the average, the masses, and for customers to even consider your product, your dream, your services, your organization, you must take massive action. I talked about the importance of domination this domination concept in my first book, If You're Not First, You're Last. I was not alluding to a concept of physical domination, but rather I was discussing the concept of mental domination, that is, occupying the space of the public, so that when people think or hear about a product similar to yours, a service, an industry, boom, they think of you. Why? Because you permeated space by taking massive action. Making massive action a discipline will break you through obscurity, which is your only real problem. Massive action will increase your value to the marketplace, and it will help ensure and guarantee that you generate success in any area of life where you elect to operate with massive action. Exercise. When was a time in your life when you were taking massive action all the time and winning? Number two, what will you immediately create when you start taking massive action? There's one thing that will happen immediately. Number three, what can you expect those who don't take massive action to say about you when you do take massive action? 
and four. What other things may happen is you start to take massive levels of action. Chapter eight, average is a failing formula. Look around and the chances you'll see a world filled with average. Although this is, as I previously stated, the acceptable level of activity upon which the middle class is built, there's growing amounts of evidence that this thinking and activity level is unworkable. Jobs are being shipped overseas. Unemployment is becoming more rampant. Members of the middle class are unable to keep their heads above water. People are living longer than their savings do, and entire companies and industries have been wiped out as a result of average products, average management, average workers, average actions, and average thinking. This addiction to average will kill the possibility of making your dreams a reality. Consider the following statistics. The average worker reads an average of less than one book a year and works an average of 37 and a half hours a week. The same person makes 319 times less money than the top CEOs in America, who, by the way, claim to read over 60 books a year. Many of these financially successful executives are maligned, that means hammer or beat up, for the huge sums of money they receive. However, we often fail to appreciate what these people have done to get where they are. Look, although it might not always look like they're working very hard, we dismiss the fact that somehow they managed to attend the right school, make the right connections, and then did whatever was necessary to move up the food chain and become CEO of the big bank. Don't be a hater, man. Join the club. Figure out what it takes to get in the top. It all required substantial action on their part to get hooked in. You can resent them if you want to, but that doesn't change the fact that they're being rewarded for the success they achieved. By the way, Everybody completely disregards that they read 60 times more than the average worker. You know, after the economy suffered greatly in 2008, Starbucks founder Howard Schultz, guy that I admire unbelievably, began to do what almost every other CEO in America was doing, cutting expenses and getting rid of non-performing locations. So the first thing he did, he, he just started whacking huge whacks at expenses. He got rid of 500 Starbucks locations that weren't performing. But what he did... Next was different than most CEOs. He then did something that most CEOs did not do, or at least I didn't see him do. He traveled all over the United States and other countries to meet with Starbucks patrons, people buying coffee. Long after the average worker had gone home, self-made billionaire Howard Schultz was visiting Starbucks stores all across America, meeting with coffee drinkers to find out how Starbucks could better satisfy customers. Now, although the media didn't do much reporting on this, it was a pretty astounding pattern of events that happened after this. Here was a guy making his way across the country at 9 o'clock at night to get feedback from people buying his products. See, this is a prime example of embracing a greater-than-average thought and action process. This is clearly above and beyond what the marketplace and even the customer expects. It far exceeded action considered common for any CEO. And Starbucks, by the way, performed with a very solid and strong growth reflected by their stock charts. This company makes a product, by the way, that people do not absolutely need, especially during troubling times. Yet Starbucks continues to sell and grow both its brand and return to investors. It dominates its sector completely. This demonstrates that although the quality of the product is clearly important, the individuals who work for an organization are truly the focus that will make the most difference. 
Schultz knew exactly how to approach the situation. Despite the recession, despite temporary contractions, he managed to expand his organization, not necessarily more locations at the time or more product line, even though he's done that since, but by using his personal energy, his resources and creativity to take massive action and touch each of his stores and many of his patrons and increase his presence with his brand and thereby increasing his revenues. Any undertaking that includes accepting average will fail you sooner or later. Anything conducted in standard average amounts simply won't get the job done. The normal level of action at which most people operate fail to take into account the effects of various forces, gravity, age, resistance, timing, and the unexpected. Baby, something's going to happen that you didn't plan on. When average actions hit any resistance, competition, loss or lack of interest, negative, consequences, situations, or challenging market conditions, or all of these at the same time, you're going to find your project get hammered and tumble down. In addition to resistance, competition, you know, just the normal things that can happen in a marketplace, I want to also have you consider that there may be, in your career and in your time, concerted efforts of individuals outside of your group or maybe inside your group who actually will impede your efforts. Now, although I'm not a person to be paranoid or live in fear, I had this personal experience and have learned from it that there are people that exist that will approach you as someone that wants to help you who actually wants to impede your efforts. I was approached by a group who claimed to want to make me a partner and help me. However, they never intended to bring me on as a partner, but instead intended from the outset to steal from me the successes I had created in my own life. Now, I never planned on this in any of my equations when I did a business plan, thought about the future. But these guys literally robbed me of years of efforts and successes. So take it from me. You cannot plan on everything. You won't plan on everything that's going to happen to you. And people will try to take from you what they are unable to create themselves. When I look back and attempt to analyze what happened with these guys, these criminals, I realize I was susceptible to their enticement. Because I wasn't operating at 10x levels anymore. I was operating at 10x compared to them, but not 10x compared to what I could do. This really opened my eyes to the fact that the moment I stopped, the moment I start resting on my own laurels and thought I could coast a little bit, I made myself a target. This isn't something that happened to me. This is something that happened because of me. It's almost impossible to plan for every situation in your lifetime, I promise you. You will experience extraordinary conditions that you have not planned on, some of which may be hostile and unpleasant. The best way to plan is to condition your thinking and your actions to 10x levels. Succeed so big that no one, no person, no event, no series of missteps can ever take you down. Average levels of anything will always fail you, or at the very least, put you at risk. Now, if on the other hand, you create more success than you want or need, you'll always be prepared. Even when those who can't create success for themselves try to steal your success from you. Although I've experienced years of success at levels that others deem to be quite impressive, I knew in my heart that I had quit taking massive action at that time. My eye was taken off the ball. And sure enough, these guys decided to peel a little of my success away. And they got away with it. And it was quite an expensive and humbling setback. But it really woke me up to the fact that, look, you're never too safe to move to normal. 
You're never too safe to make a normal level of involvement, activity, and action a choice. Once you do so, I assure you that what you have and what you've dreamed of will start to disappear. It will be eroded either by natural mechanisms or by someone trying to take it. This holds true for your health, your marriage, your wealth, your spiritual condition, everything. Normal gets you just what normal says it's going to get you. Normal. Average. Below levels of extraordinary. See what average thoughts and actions will get you? Average problems that can quickly become overwhelming problems. What if you live 20 years longer than your savings? Do you understand the problem with that? Many of us will have to take care of other family members because they didn't have the 10x mindset or operate at 10x levels. What happens when your mom or your dad, your brother, your uncle, your aunt, your grandfather calls and says, I need some help, man. I got 10 years left and I don't have any money and you can't help them? That's average. What about the possibility of long-term health issues or some state of economic emergency that you haven't foreseen, you know, lasting for some unforeseen time? What happens to entire classes of people who made average financial plans when faced with extended periods of very difficult economic times or decades of extended unemployment that we're going to probably be faced with? Average is a failing plan, is a disaster waiting to happen. It's a train wreck. Average doesn't work in any area of life. Anything that you give only average amount of attention to will start to subside and will eventually cease to exist. Companies, industries, artists, products, individuals who continue into the future successfully are those who approach every activity with the outlook that average is just not good enough. You need to change your commitment and thinking to be far above any concept or consideration that involves average. I promise you that when you do so, you will immediately start influencing other areas of your life and other people. Your friends and family will start to change. Results will improve. You will find yourself getting lucky. You may even experience time flying by, getting more done. And the actions you are taking will begin to approve not just your own life, but your associations with other people. Average is also a reason why most new companies fail. A couple of people get together, they have a great idea, they write a business plan. Maybe this happened to you. Start a company, they base their predictions on everything going in their favor. They may even create what they consider to be a very conservative projection. Let's say we show the product to 10 people. We're bound to sell it to at least three of them. Well, let's be conservative. Someone in the group says, let's cut that in half. We'll be especially safe. Can we still make it? They decide that even based on the most conservative plan, they will be successful. But what they didn't correctly assess is how many people they would have to call on just to do the initial 10 presentations. Everything else was right. One and a half out of 10 were good. What they didn't understand was they'd have to see 100 just to do 10 presentations. Even the most amazing product on earth might require 100 calls just to get 10 meetings. Just because you have the next step of the project completely planned out doesn't mean the rest of the world is with you. They're paying attention to their own stuff. They're committed to their own schedules, their own products, their own projects, their own initiatives. Merely getting the opportunity to see the right people is going to take so much effort, enormous effort and persistence, just getting in front of the right people. Most people are building business plans based on average considerations and ways of thinking, not massive amounts of action that are necessary to push through resistance. See, when new ideas come together, they're influenced by excitement and enthusiasm. 
Many negative considerations such as competition, economy, market conditions, manufacturing, lending, raising money, preoccupation of the clients. That's a huge one. Your clients are preoccupied with other projects. How about earthquakes, wars, tsunamis, you know, entire cities being wiped out, production being stopped, distractions by the media? see, your optimistic projections prove unrealistic. Even the most conservative objectives are missed because you just couldn't plan on everything. A key partner gets sick. Maybe there's some significant change in economic conditions, global events like we're seeing right now, and it shifts everyone's attention for three or four, five, six months. People involved in the new venture start to lose their enthusiasm pretty quick, don't they? They start bickering. Things become more difficult than was originally considered. Failure emerges as a likely possibility. The partners go through more money than anyone projected and no income coming in. One of the dreamers begins to have second thoughts and wonders if perhaps he should bail. Retreater. He's trying to protect himself. Since the players don't seem mentally, emotionally, or physically prepared to take the massive action necessary to push through market resistance. Now, continuing with the scenario, in order to resolve the lack of income... The members of the group, the remaining members, try to borrow or raise money from their friends. They hit even more resistance. Then they realize it's going to become increasingly difficult for most people or anyone to ante up to the unreasonable amounts of relentless 10x actions that are necessary to see things through. The partners start to believe that their company relies more intensely on raising money than it does on increasing actions. They spend all their time, we got to raise money. They don't think about, dude, just increase the level of activity. Because they didn't correctly estimate the 10 level of thoughts and actions necessary to see it through. Average assumes incorrectly, of course, that everything operates stably. People optimistically overestimated how well things will go. And then underestimate how much energy and effort it will take just to push things through. Anyone who has made it in business will support this concept. You simply cannot train or prepare for normal conditions of gravity. You cannot train or prepare or fund for normal amounts of competition, resistance, or market conditions. Don't think average, baby. Think massive. Compare your actions to having to carry a 1,000-pound backpack that you wear every day into a 40-mile-an-hour wind on a 20-degree upward slope. Prepare for massive, persistent action, and I promise you, you'll win either way. No matter what happens, you'll be the last standing. Most businesses fail because they're unable to sell their ideas, their products and services at prices high enough to sustain the company and fund its activities. The company isn't able to collect revenue in quantities great enough because the people on which the company was built, their employees, the customers, they, they, they take normal average amounts of action and that's it. Look, average never yields anything more than average and usually much less. Average thinking and actions will guarantee you a life of misery, uncertainty, and failure. Rid yourself of everything that is average, including the advice you get from the friends you keep. Sounds too tough? Remember, success is your duty, your obligation, and your responsibility. And since there is no shortage of success, any apparent limitations you're experiencing might simply be the result of average thinking and average acting. Rid yourself of every concept of average. Study what average people do and prohibit yourself and your team from considering average as an option. 
Surround yourself with exceptional thinkers and doers. Let your friends, family, and work associates know that you treat average like a terminal disease. Remember, average anything will never get you to an extraordinary life. Look up the word average and you will see for yourself what it holds for you. Typical, ordinary, common. That should be enough to abandon the concept from all your considerations. Exercise. I want you to write down the names of people you know who operate at only average levels. I want you to write down three times in your life where average actions cause you to come up short. Write down the names of people who you know who are exceptional and describe how they are different and operate above average levels. I want you to look up the word, the definition of average as an adjective and write it here. Chapter 9, 10X Goals. This chapter will blow you away, I promise you. It is the number one reason why your goals are not attained. I believe that one of the major reasons, if not the only reason, why people don't stick to their goals and fail to accomplish their goals is because they fail to set goals that are high enough from the beginning. I have read many books on goal setting and even been to seminars on this topic, and I constantly see people set goals that either they never get started on or later bail out on. Frequently and regularly, most of us have been warned against setting goals that are too high. Even in seminars, I've heard people say, oh, you don't want to set them too high because then the reality is if you start with small, you're probably going to go small. People's failure to think big enough in the beginning usually means they will never act big enough, often enough, or persistently enough. After all, who gets excited about so-called realistic goals? And who can stay excited about anything with an, at best, average payoff? That's why people begin to bail on projects, even before they get started. When, when they experience any kind of resistance, later, they bail. Their goals just aren't big enough to keep you jacked excited. To maintain your enthusiasm, you have to make your goals substantial enough that they keep your attention. Average and realistic goals are always, almost always, a letdown to the person setting them who is then unable to fuel his or her goals with the actions necessary to accomplish the goals. Indeed, most people, no offense, are so apathetic about their goals that they only write them down once a year when the media says, oh, it's resolution day. We got to write our New Year's resolutions. As far as I'm concerned, Nothing worth doing is done once or twice a year. It's ridiculous. The things upon which your life depend on the most are the actions you take every day. That's why I make sure to always do two things. One, I write my goals down every day. And two, I choose objectives that are just out of my reach. I, I recently saw an interview with Ted Turner. He said the biggest mistake his father made was that he had set goals that were achievable. He achieved them and then he spent the rest of his life depressed. So this opens me up to my full potential. When I'm writing my goals down every day and I'm choosing objectives just out of reach, it opens me up to my full potential, which I use to fuel my actions each day. Some people suggest that setting improbable, unreachable goals might actually cause a person to become disappointed and lose interest. But look, if your goals are so small that you don't even consider them worthy and you won't write them down every day that they're not even worth throwing energy into, dude, you're going to lose interest either way. A good idea 
is to word your goals as though you've already accomplished them. But make them big, baby. Make them massive. How do you expect massive 10x levels of action if you're setting little bitsy little goals? You're not a mouse. Yeah, I keep this legal pad next to my bed so I can record my goals first thing in the morning and right before I go to bed at night. I do this every day. I've been doing it for years. I miss from time to time I miss, but I have hundreds of legal pads basically that I've thrown in the trash can with goals from when I was 26, 36, 33, 44, 51, yesterday, today, and they change. We, we started this audio program about that. Your goals change as life goes on. So, so I'm rewriting them all the time. This keeps my attention on them. I always keep a legal pad in my office on which I can record new and improved objectives. I'm not talking about a to-do list. I'm talking about goals that are out of reach. The following are some examples of some of the goals I'm currently working on and how I write them down. I'm only using these to show you what I write down in hopes that you're going to start writing your own down. Notice, I word them as though I have already achieved them when I've yet to achieve them. I own 5,000 plus apartments that return over 12% positive cash flow. I'm in perfect health and physical condition. My net worth is over $100 million. My income is over $1 million a month. I have written and published 12 or more best-selling books. My marriage is alive and healthy and a positive model for others. I am more in love with my wife every day. I have two beautiful and healthy children. I have no debt except for that which is paid by others. You see, not all debt is bad. You don't want to say, I don't have any debt. You can never get rich if you have no debt. I have no debt except that which is paid by others. I own a beautiful home in the ocean that has no debt. I own a ranch in California that has incredible views of the mountains and horses and is my ideal scene. I own companies that I'm able to control from a distance and have great people working with me. My children are friends with the most powerful people on this planet. I am making positive difference in my community and politics. I continue to create unique programs that people want and that improve the quality of other people's lives and that people use long after I am no longer around. I have endless energy and interest in my career. I have a hit TV show that has been on for five seasons or more. I am one of the largest donors to my church. Keep in mind that these are some of my goals, and they're only being used to give you an example of how I word them. Also note that they are things that have yet to be achieved, not things that have been achieved. None of these things have ever been achieved by me. Average goal setting cannot and will not fuel massive 10x actions. So if you agree with the 10x concept of action, do you got to set bigger goals than you can reach? If you approach an endeavor with average thinking to start with, you will start to give up the moment you even come up against a challenge. The resistance that you know is going to come are less than optimal conditions that will exist sooner or later. Unless you have some big, juicy, giant purpose, baby, that's your engine. That's the fuel. To get through resistance, you must have a big reason to be there. The bigger and more unrealistic your goal, the more they're aligned to your purpose and the duty, the more you'll energize and fuel your actions. For example, let's say I want to save 100 million, 100 million bones in one bank account or multiple bank account. Look, does anyone need $100 million? No, come on. It is a goal. And the bigger and the juicier it is, the more likely you'll be motivated to move in that direction through resistance. Now, let me ask you, you naysayers out there, you haters, you people drifting off into average land right now. You're going to win a lottery. 
Okay, you guys are like, I don't need a hundred million. You're going to win a lottery. You're going to buy a ticket. It's going to be a buck. You want to win a one million dollar lottery, or you want to win a hundred million dollar lottery? Come on, man, get your thinking right. If you're going to win a lottery, win a hundred million. You can do more good with it. If you want to add even more energy to your goals, then make sure they're tied to something even bigger than just things like money. For instance, someone who wants to earn money but doesn't have a constructive goal for what to do with that money may only produce the money and then just get rid of it. They'll waste it. You follow me? So if the goal is just I want a hundred million, notice I want to do a hundred million, but I want to be the biggest donor at my church. It's attached to something worthy. When you're setting a goal, be sure that you're clear about what you want it for. And then if you can, when you're ready, tie it to a bigger purpose. Think massive all the way across the board. Don't just think massive. I want money. Think I can have it all. I want to, I want money and to be happy. Think massive and broad, not just vertical. You, you follow me? Think massive on your goals, big, giant, vertical goals, and broad when setting your goals across all your thoughts, all the areas of your life. Many people make money a target and set a goal to save it but then just destroy the wealth that was created. They basically, you ever seen a, a rich celebrity? They got rich and then blew it all? Or an athlete, they got rich and then blew it all? So maybe their goal was just to have a bunch of money temporarily. Or they didn't have a real positive, constructive goal for what to do with that money. Look at how many people just wanted to get rich and did. And then died broke. So having goals aligned with other goals will start to actually help fuel your goal. Let's say one of my goals is to save $100 million, and another goal is to use that money to help my church, and, and another goal is to fund programs to improve conditions for mankind, and another goal is that my products will be used 200 years from now by other civilizations that maybe aren't even on this planet yet. Whatever, you know? See, those are huge, man. Those are giant. So I start thinking, oh, I'm doing this audio program. What do I want to name it? How do I want to get out? How do I protect it so that it's being used years from now? This is an example of combining goals in a broad fashion that will generate the fuel and horsepower to drive your actions and your goals. Look, one of my first jobs that I ever had was at McDonald's. I hated that job. It wasn't because it was McDonald's. It wasn't because I smelled like French fries when I went home. You know, it wasn't because, you know, it was a, t a tough time in my life and I'm 15 years old and I got acne and I think that the French fries and the hamburgers are adding to it. Look, I hated it because it wasn't lined up with my goals and my purposes. The guy who worked next to me, he loved his job because it aligned perfectly with his goals and his purposes. I was the guy making $7 an hour because I wanted to have extra money, you know, uh, during the summer. He was the guy making $7 an hour who wanted to open a business, a McDonald franchise, by the way. He wanted to open a hundred franchises. So every time he's making $7 an hour, he's learning the business, learning about McDonald's, thinking about his franchise. He didn't understand why I was excited, and I didn't understand why he was. I was fired, and he was fired up. Your goals are there to fuel the actions you need to take. So make your goals big, make them giant, make them massive, and make them off, and then tie them in with your other greater purposes. Ask yourself whether the goals you have set are equal to your potential. If they're not equal to your potential, man, to your ability, to what you could be actually doing, they're not going to get you jacked. Most people will admit that their goals are well below their potential because most of the world has been convinced, remember, persuaded, and even educated to be small and set small, attainable, and realistic goals. If you're a parent, I'm sure you have heard yourself suggest to your children or maybe heard it from your parents to you or in your work environment 
Man, be reasonable, man. Never set realistic goals. It's a killer. Never be reasonable with your goal setting. You can get a realistic life without setting goals for it. You don't need to go out of your way to have a realistic life. Everybody's got one of those. I despise the word realistic. I hate the word reasonable because they're based on what others consider all right. Others who have probably been operating at only the first three degrees of action, who've only accomplished a little bit and only think in terms of what has been done rather than what is possible. Realistic thinking is based on what others think is possible, but they aren't you and they have no way of knowing what your potential and purpose is. If you're going to set goals based on what others think, then be sure that you do it based on what the giants on this planet think. If you're going to set goals based on what other things, maybe at least pick the giants. And even that would be a mistake. They, they'll be the first to tell you, don't base your goals on what I've done, because you can do even more. Jesus Christ said, you can do more than I can do. But what if you set goals based on the top players? Hey, you could do that. Steve Jobs' goal, for instance, he wants to ding the universe. He's not interested in making iPads. He wants to ding, flick the universe. That's huge. He wants to create products that forever change the planet. Look at what he's done with Apple and Pixar. If you're going to set goals comparable to others, buddy, at least pick a giant. At least pick giants that have created massive success in their own right. And always know that you can even do more than that. Many people find themselves on the path. They're on simply because they're doing what other average people are doing or have done. Most people go to college, not because they want to go to college, but because they're told to go to college is the right thing to do. Most people belong to the religion they belong to only because they were brought up in a family that goes to that religion. They don't even really know what they're going to. But they'll fight for it. If the religion comes up, they'll fight for it. But look, they didn't even choose that. Most people speak the language that their family speaks and never take the time to learn another language. Most of us are influenced by the decisions our parents, teachers, and friends have made. And then the limitations set by them on themselves and then for us. I bet that if I asked your five closest associates about their goals, I'll probably be able to identify your goals as well. You and your goals are manipulated by your surroundings. I will never tell a person what his or her goals should be. That would be wrong for me to do. However, I would advise that when you do set your goals, take into account that you've been educated with restrictions and limitations. Be aware of this so that you don't underestimate your possibilities. Then take the following into account. You're setting your goals for you, not for anyone else. Number two, anything is possible. Number three, you have much more potential than you realize. Four, success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. Five, there is no shortage of success. Six, regardless of the size of the goal, it will require work, period. Once you've reviewed these concepts, then sit down and write down your goals. Write them out for you, maybe for the first time, and then be willing to rewrite them every day until you achieve them. Or maybe you just come up short. I promise you, you'll be pleased if they're big enough. If you underestimate your potential while you're writing them, which is probably going to happen, then it's impossible to set appropriately sized targets. You follow me? Look, if you've underestimated your potential, then it's impossible to set appropriately sized targets for what your potential is. Set the goal too small, and you won't gear up for the massive action necessary. I know the concept of the 10x rule is not for everyone. I know that. 
It's clearly not for anyone who's willing to accept average or mediocrity or for those who prefer to kick back and settle for leftovers. It's not for those who want to depend on hope and prayer for their success. Look, the 10X rule is meant for the few people obsessed with creating an exceptional life and who want to be in charge of that process. The 10X rule removes the concepts of luck and chance from your business equation and shows you exactly the mindset you must embrace in order to lock in massive success. Consider the following scenario. Let's say that you're setting your financial goals. Okay, in 2009, now remember, whatever financial goals you're setting right now, they've been influenced by your education, your upbringing, the newspaper you read, and everything you've heard. In 2009, the President of the United States, at that time, said, anyone who makes $250,000 should be considered rich. Keeping with the current trend, if you make $250,000, your tax will be hundred grand, regardless of the state you live in, leaving you with $150,000. After you make payments on two cars that most of you have, make a mortgage payment most of you have, pay your property taxes, which you have to pay, okay? feed, clothe, and school your kids, you're going to be lucky to have twenty grand left over. If you save that money for the next 20 years, you'll end up with about 400 grand before interest. And assume, assume nothing goes wrong. Now take into account the fact that your parents, possibly both your parents and your in-laws, didn't plan for their own retirement properly. They're going to outlive their savings by about 15 years and will depend on someone in your household, and they always seem to go with the people with the money, to take care of them. If any of this happens, you're going to find out quite quickly and too late that you underestimated your financial goals, you'll spend more time just trying to manage holding on to it than what it took to accumulate it. And remember, in addition to taking care of your parents, you have to fund your own retirement years and your kids' education. Additionally, this scenario assumes no increases in the cost of living, no bad news, no inflation, no emergencies, no major events. Throwing just a little of what has happened in the last couple of years, hey, just the last couple of months, and you'll see that 90% of the population has underestimated their goals, their targets, and even what was necessary to fund a lifestyle, much less their purposes. Small thinking, baby, it's a disaster waiting to happen, and it's always going to punish you sooner or later. We live on a planet where the primary belief is an underestimation of everything. Do you understand that? Your friends, your associates, your parents, the, the school you went to, there's an underestimation of everything. The best business schools in this country cite undercapitalization. You didn't fund the company enough. As one of the top reasons for company failures, this is caused by miscalculations of how much cash a company would burn through before its product caught on and is yet another example of how average doesn't cut it. Companies fail because they didn't sell enough of their products, period. They underestimated how hard it was going to be to get their product to the marketplace fast enough. The biggest regret of my life is not the fact that I haven't worked my ass off. Dude, I did the massive action thing. I've been cranking for 25 years. I wrote four books in the last two years. That's not the problem. For me, the biggest complaint I have, the biggest regret of my life, it's that I didn't set targets 10 times higher than I originally thought. When I dreamed of how much money, I should have been thinking in the beginning big. But I was influenced by my upbringing. My goals were influenced and limited greatly by the way I was brought up. And yours have been too. You just got to know it. I'm not blaming anyone. It's just a fact. I spent the first 30 years of my business career getting the 10x effort part right. The effort. And I'm going to spend the next 25 years getting the 10x goal setting part right. Where I'm thinking big enough. And I'm telling you, you start writing this stuff down now, right, right now, a year from now, you'll be writing different targets because you'll accomplish the one from a year ago. 
So number one, set 10x targets for goals. Find out what your target is, 10x it. Align them with other purposes. Number two, write them down every day when you wake up and before you go to sleep. You do that, I guarantee you're going to live and act, operate. You're going to attract new friends, and you're going to play at a different level. Exercise. I want you to write down how your upbringing has influenced your goal setting. Specifically, exactly, goals that you've set that were influenced by your upbringing. Number two, what are some goals you would have set if you knew you could achieve them? Number three, what are other goals or purposes that align with primary goals, the broad goals, you know, the other ones that are attached, that would further fuel your activity? And four, look at the list of goals I wrote and find two things that they all have in common. And every goal I wrote, there's two things that are in common with each one of them. Chapter 10, competition is for sissies. One of the greatest lies perpetuated by mankind is the idea that competition is good. Good for whom? Exactly. It might help provide customers with choices, competition would, and it would compel others to do better. That's true. Competition is probably good in athletics because it makes another guy run faster. However, in the business world, you always want to be in a position to dominate, not compete, if you had a choice. Even in athletics, I'd rather dominate if I owned the club. If the old saying, competition is healthy, if that's even true, the new saying is, if competition is healthy, then domination is immunity. Immunity means I never get sick. I'm not at risk. From what I've seen, competing with others limits a person's ability to think creatively because he or she is constantly watching, competing with what someone else is doing. The reason my first business has been so successful is because I created a sales program that introduced a truly original way of selling for which there was no competition. It was a new way, a new thing. It was clearly a new way to think and a new way to approach selling. So people found that interesting. Now, in addition to that, it also worked, okay? No one had done anything new with selling other than just copy or compete. By the way, copying is competing. No one had done anything new with selling for more than 200 years. So I ignored the competition, actually threw away everything else I had ever read on selling, and did something to create a new sales process called information-assisted selling. Now, this is back in the 90s before the Internet. Giving people information at that time was not really part of selling. It was about avoiding. This was before net, before customers had information readily available, before Google searches, before social media. But I predicted that sellers would have to throw away the old way of selling and learn how to use information to assist the sale. Although I was ahead of my time and traditional thinkers resisted, once the Internet hit critical mass, information-assisted selling became a way of selling for many industries. And my competition was left holding on to antiquated systems and processes. What they do? They started copying me. Copying is a form of competing, and competition is dead. I came out on top because people were thrilled to see something completely new. Forward thinkers don't copy. They don't compete. Forward thinkers create. They also don't look at what others have done. If Steve Jobs with Apple Computer, and this will date the book sooner or later, if he looked at his iPad for what other people had done, he wouldn't have created an iPad. 
Never make it your goal to compete. Instead, do everything you can to dominate your sector in order to avoid spending your time chasing or competing with someone else. Competition is for sissies. Domination is where you want to be. Don't let another company set the pace. Make this your organization's job to set the pace for the whole sector. Stay ahead of the pack. When I'm driving down the interstate, I speed. I break the law, and I definitely do speed. Why? Because I don't want to be driving with other people. I want to be way out ahead, no wrecks out there. Make it so that you want others to chase you. Be out ahead so others try to be like you, not the other way around. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't study others. You should study best practices, industry trends, what's working, what's winning. However, you want to make it your job to take those concepts to another level. For example, Apple makes computers and smartphones. It didn't copy Dell, IBM, RIM, and what others were doing. Apple doesn't compete. It dominates. It sets the pace, and it lets others try to chase and duplicate them. See, they're always chasing, trying to catch up. Don't set your goals at a competitive level. Set them at a domination level. Set them at a level that will overshadow and dominate your sector and everyone in it. How do you dominate? How do you do this, you may wonder. The first step is to decide to dominate. Man, if you're thinking about competition, baby, you can't dominate. Then the best way to dominate is to do what other people refuse to do. Step two, do what others refuse to do. That's right. Do what they won't do. Do what they say, that, that's not right. You can't do that. That's not going to work. Okay? You want to do what other people, your competition supposedly, will not do. This will allow you to immediately carve out a space for yourself and develop an unfair advantage. Let me be clear. I want an unfair advantage. I'm ethical, but I never play fair. I want an unfair advantage if I can create one. Though I am always ethical, I never, ever play fair. I seek out ways in which I can get an unfair advantage always. And one surefire way to get an unfair advantage is to do what others will not do. Find something they cannot do. Maybe because of their size or their commitment to other projects, you can exploit that. Maybe they're cutting back during a time when the economy is uncertain. I recently went through that where a competitor, a direct competitor, was cutting back. I decided to spend all my money while he was trying to conserve it because obscurity was a bigger problem for me than money. This would be your moment to expand in those spaces when they're contracting. A company I was recently working with that sells dental implants told me the leader in the field had cut their travel expenses and elected that all their clients be contacted by phone or over the net. So I convinced the company, do what they won't do, man. You get an unfair advantage. Get a competitive advantage, you just got to do what they do. Get an unfair advantage, we decided to dominate by making personal contacts while the leader was just making phone and internet. It's domination, man. You got to think in terms of domination, not competition. Never play by the agreed upon norms within your group operates. Every group, every industry, every sector has these agreed upon norms. The, 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 uh, what do you call them? The, the cows, the sacred cows. Yeah. Look, the rules, the norms, the sacred cows, the traditions of any groups or any industry are usually traps that prevent that group from new ideas, higher levels of greatness, and pure domination. You don't want to be just in a race. You want to be at the top of the list of considerations. So when they go out for bid, hey, we really want Grant to do it, but let's bid on a couple other people just so Grant keeps us fair. You know, if Grant's close, then we're taking him. See, even better, 
you would like to be the only one in the race considered as the viable solution. Okay, Grant's the really the solution. You know, guys, let's don't even waste time getting biz. Let's just go with Grant. You have so much power in your space that your clients, your market, even your competition has to think about you first every time they make a decision. IBM did this so successfully years ago that all PCs were then referred to as IBMs. There was a time when Xerox also accomplished this so successfully that all copiers were referred to as Xerox. They wouldn't even say print a copy. They'd say Xerox a copy. That's pure domination of a sector. And not correctly protecting your trademark name like Xerox and IBM didn't do? Uh, that's another issue. Look, the goal at my sales training company is not to compete with others in the space for the revenue or the clients. Our goal is to literally make sure that every human being on planet Earth equates Grant Cardone with sales training solutions. Achievable? Probably not. But it's a target we use for making decisions. You understand? It's a target we use for making decisions. Hey, should we promote this book out? Should we do whatever? Should we get an, should we get an app out for sales training or closing the sale? Or It's going to cost money. Hey, what's our goal? My goal is to get everyone to equate my name, Grant Cardone, with sales training. If I achieve even part of that, do I accomplish goals? Absolutely. Domination. Our goal is to dominate the thinking of all people so that my name becomes synonymous with sales training. Google the term sales motivation and watch my video pop up. Okay, Think in terms of search, you're going to think in terms of Google. They dominate. That is the way to approach a sector, gold, or endeavor. To own it completely. Dominate the space. You can always learn from what others are doing. You don't want to chase them. Sam Walton, founder of Walmart, was said to shop other stores weekly in order to see what they were doing well. And then he would do everything he could to dominate that space. At that time, he also had the goal of domination, not the goal of competition. If you're going to duplicate the best of what others do, then hammer away at them, champion that practice, make it yours, own it. So people start to associate your name with that. Hone their specialties until they become your advantage. Do so to the point where you become the expert, the leader. People even think you were the creator, even if you weren't, in that area. So you dominate it so incredibly that they no longer even want to attempt competing with you. And you don't have to be first to a space to dominate it. But it's important to be considered first in the space. You see the difference? Joe creates something first. But when you think about it, you think about me first. You don't have to be first. You want to be considered first. That's domination. The message you want to send to the marketplace through your persistent action is, no one can keep up with me. I'm not going away. I am not a competitor. I am the space. Most of you will have less money than some of the leaders in your space. Even if you have less money than the other players in your market, that doesn't mean you're at a disadvantage. It means you have fewer choices, which might be good. Although they may be able to outspend you or out-advertise you, you can certainly outwork them by using social media, personal visits, mail, email, networking, phone call, friends, relatives, referrals, hammer, commitment, dominate, create campaigns using the resources you do have. Most people talk about their money. Look, your energy is worth more than your money. Energy is money. Most people tell me, oh, if I just had money, you know, it takes money to make money. That's garbage. It takes freaking courage and, and commitment and persistence to make money. There's no shortage of energy, effort, creativity, or how much you can contact your clients. There's no shortage of that. You got a money shortage, man. 
You don't have an energy, effort, creativity, or how many times you can contact somebody's shortage. Use variations of campaigns, offers, information, videos, links, blogs, third-party validation, mail, email. Am I freaking you out right now, baby? I'm trying to dominate your thinking. Phone calls, personal visits, combinations, counter, left, right. Dude, you don't need to spend money on advertising. You need to expand and dominate your own thinking and then your presence in that market. Warning. When using activity to counter deep pockets, you know those guys that can advertise? Never underestimate how much activity actually takes to get noticed in the first place and then to maintain attention in your space. For example, people think that they can post on Facebook or Twitter, you know, once or twice a day, some people once or twice a week, and that you're going to create an effect. Look, you don't understand massive action if you think twos... If you think in twos twice of anything, if you think if you think twice of anything once in a while is going to do anything, you're nuts. You don't understand massive action or how big the internet space is, and you're underestimating what it's going to take to actually get you considered. If you think a couple of posts are going to get you noticed, I don't care what you write. You could be brilliant in both the posts. Like every other aspect of growing your business, you got to keep showing up over and over and over and make it obvious you're not going away. Follow me on Facebook. Go to facebook.com forward slash Cardone Success and you'll see, you'll see what it takes to be in a space and to acquire new fans and new people without advertising, not spending any money, just effort. We tweet twice an hour, 24 hours a day. I want people to complain about it, okay? Complain I'm doing too much. I know I'm doing something right. Because what's going to happen is this. First, you get no attention. Then you get a complaint, which is attention. And then you get admiration, which is good, positive attention. The good thing about social media is anyone can play in the space, regardless of his or her financial situation. It allows for unlimited creativity and rewards only those who use it consistently and persistently. When I first started playing with social media, I use that word loosely, playing, because I don't play much on it. I posted twice a day. I didn't know what I was thinking. I, I was having a moment of average, a little think. We simultaneously at the same time began sending out email strategies once a month and found ourselves getting requests from people who wanted to be removed from our email campaign. My colleagues, people that work with me, suggested, hey, we should back off. We're getting complaints. People are taking us off. They're, they're pulling off our strategies. They, they want to be unlinked to our email campaign. And one day I woke up and I came to my senses and I said, hey, you know what? If they're complaining... They're thinking about us. So I made the order. I want you to increase the post 10 times what we've been doing. I want to go out with more email strategies and campaigns, not less. I then instructed my employees to start sending out electronic strategies eight times a month rather than once and began personally posting comments 48 times a day on Twitter and Facebook an average of 12 times a day. Each of them was written by me and they were set out to be dropped at a certain time. Although you might assume that the complaints and unsubscribe, that's the word I was looking for a few minutes ago, would increase with this massive outflow campaign, they didn't. Oh, while we did increase numbers, percentage-wise we didn't because we started getting more people to play. Instead, we started receiving emails and posts of admiration for my activity level. So this is what's going to happen. First thing you're going to do is get complaints. Second thing you're going to do is get criticism. Third thing you're going to do is get haters. Fourth thing you're going to do is get admiration. I'll talk about the haters in a second here. You need haters, baby. You want some haters. If you got 10, get you 20. We started receiving so much positive. Man, how do you do all this? How big's your staff? Where do you find the time? Do you ever rest? And for every person commenting, there had to be a thousand thinking something similar. And who do you think they were thinking about? This wasn't expensive to do. 
It only costs energy, effort, and creativity. At the same time I was doing this, the guy who most people compared me to was asked the question, what do you think about social media? And he responded, I'm still evaluating it. While he's evaluating, I'm beating him to death. I'm posting one day on Twitter. I'm going to make Twitter my little bitch. I'm doing everything I can to tweet something to grab attention. This is a great example of domination and outrageous thinking, and the action costs no money. Think about domination like this. You can't dominate if you don't penetrate, and you won't penetrate by using reasonable levels of activity. Your biggest problem, remember, is what? Obscurity. They don't know you, man. They ain't thinking about you. Again, domination is about dominating the space so that when they think about your space, let's say you do apple pies. They think about apple pie. They think about, oh, I got to go to her. Another problem for all of this is just getting through the amount of noise in the marketplace. You're underestimating how noisy the marketplace is. You have to do two things. One, get noticed. And number two, get through the noise. In my case, had we made a decision to back off like my employees were telling to satisfy a few complainers that had already unsubscribed anyway and were never going to buy anything from me anyhow, okay, we would have not expanded our contact base. The more I posted, the more people liked me. The more I found out what people want to hear and don't want to hear. The more we put out, the more people we helped. As we blasted on this new program, we even saw posts from competitors mocking me. Now, this is important. You want criticism, man. You want to look for it. Yet even these comments brought attention to who? I got competitors. Cardone thinks this, or Cardone's doing that, or what's he doing over there? Okay, who are they talking about? They're talking about me. When you're talking about me, who are you thinking about? Two things will happen when you take the right amount of action. One, you're going to get a new set of problems. And two, your competition will actually start promoting you. <laughs> Can you believe it? I love this. When I've made such an impact on others who don't even know me or having conversations that raise awareness about my business, my products, and what I'm up to. People that don't even know my product or me are actually passing on my content and talking about, hey, did you see this? Because there's enough activity. Determine the capability, the actions, and mindsets of those whom you compete with. Do what they will not do. Go where they will not go. And think and take actions in 10x quantities that they can't comprehend. Don't get too involved in competing on best practices. Because best practices is a competitive level. Take your actions to a point considered unreasonable by others, even the world where you're doing those things that only your company would do, only you could conceive of, and are willing to do something I call only practices. For one company I once consulted with, we identified places in which only practices could be employed. We discovered the industry in general struggled with practices of following up with customers. They struggled with this practice. They didn't follow up well. So we looked at what our competitors would not do, not what they did do, but not do, and found that none of them would call back clients as they left the company or the store. This led the company to immediately initiate programs during which clients were called back as they drove away from the company. Managers then immediately started calling clients' cell phones as they left the company premises and asked them, Mr. Johnson, would you please return? Mr. Johnson's only a block away from the company right now. If the call went to voicemail, the manager left a message requesting that please come back immediately. I have something I must show you. Or the manager would send a text saying the same thing. 
If they were, there was no successful contact made, another manager would then repeat the call back that same day. And again, the next morning, the results were sick. They were crazy. 50% of the clients returned immediately of the ones they contacted, and almost 80% in total of those became buyers at that time. Another 20% returned as a result of the later calls and increased the sales of that organization to new and unseen before levels. This is an example of an only practice, doing what your competition will not do. Look, it doesn't matter what you do. It does matter that your goal is to dominate your sector with actions that are immediate, consistent, and persistent, and at levels that no one else is willing to operate or duplicate. Am I overwhelming you right now? It's a lot, isn't it? You're like, damn, man, how am I going to do all this? Because you're going to get on my new pill, baby. The pill is massive action. The pill is domination. Take any action and take it to another level that will separate you and your company from everyone else that might be in your space. Be willing to spend every last bit of your energy, die in the effort and the creativity on distinguishing yourself as the only player, the dominator. Learn how to dominate by being first in the minds of your market, your clients, and even your competitors. Market conditions won't improve until you improve the way you think. Look, your economy is not going to get better until you get better. Even if you're in a weak market, you suffer less when you dominate it, right? If you can dominate a weak market, who's going to dominate when it's good? If you can dominate a great market, who's going to dominate when it's bad? Weak markets actually create opportunities because the players in that market typically have become dependent and weak. And they don't know how to operate in challenging environments. I love recessions, man. Never waste a good recession. Don't feel sorry for the weak. Dominate them. Somebody's going to. They're not having bad luck. They're not victims. They're average thinkers, and they take average actions. And if they haven't read this book, they know what they're going to end up with without even reading this book, average. The marketplace is brutal. It's not political. It's not Democrat. It's not Republican. It's not independent, baby. It's brutal. And it will punish anyone and everyone who does not take the right amount of action. Now is your time to shift into making your every thought and action aimed at dominating your sector, your market, your competition, and every thought of your potential clients. Quit thinking about the competition and quit thinking about competing. Despite what everyone says, competition is not healthy. Competition is for sissies. Exercise. What is the difference between dominating and competing? If competition is healthy, domination is. What is the difference between best practices and only practices? And write down a few examples. What are some practices you could do that would separate you right now from whoever you compete with? Chapter 11, Breaking Out of the Middle Class. Please don't take offense at what I write in this chapter. I know many of you spent your whole life trying to get to the middle class, and I'm about to tell you it's the wrong goal. Now, have an open mind here, okay? I'm going to write an entire book on this topic one day, but for now, let's just think about breaking out of what I call the middle class mentality. I believe I can make the case that the middle class is the group hurt most by its members' thinking and actions, leaving themselves to be the most susceptible to insecurity and pain. Although this group that many people aspire to be a part of is also the group that seems to be the most trapped, most manipulated, and at most risk. 
Is the middle class really as good a status as you've been made to believe? Do you even know what it means to be middle class or what puts a person in this group? Before you make a decision about where you're going or the group you're striving to belong to, it would be wise to inspect the statistics of that group. So let's look at the incomes of the middle class. Reports from Wikipedia and the 2008 census suggest that the middle class income range is somewhere between $35,000 to $50,000 a year. Read another set of studies, and these figures are between $22,000 and $65,000 a year. It's no secret that it would be extremely difficult to live on either of these incomes in an urban area like New York or L.A., much less ever feel financially secure. This experience is not what most people would consider a desirable situation. The middle class is further divided into the upper and lower middle class. Most people think middle class, they think one thing, but that's not how it is. The upper middle class usually consists of people who have substantial assets and household earnings, whether you know it or not, over a million dollars a year. Although there is nothing to substantiate what makes the $1 million the mark, I guess it just sounds good. Most people consider $1 million to be a lot of money until they have $1 million. Then they realize it doesn't go very far since the person's decisions once they have a million and their considerations tend to change. Their investments change, where they live changes as they enter this new income or this net worth bracket. Now, the people in the supposed upper middle class occupy noticeably higher positions by average in their offices. They're considered more stable financially than their peers. This may very well be the case until some sort of economic destruction occurs like we've experienced recently. Then we tend to see that even this group, the upper middle class, is not very well protected. Admittedly, members of this group should experience a considerable rise in their incomes due to the economic growth of a nation in good times. They have higher disposable incomes than many of their counterparts in the lower middle class, which consists of people who have basic educational qualifications, typically, and annual incomes between thirty and 60000 Now look, the lower middle class constitutes a large part of our country's total population. It's the majority. This set frequently struggles to reach the upper middle class. However, when economic hardships take hold, everyone gets pulled down. A client of mine recently asked me, via text message, I think the 26th of a recent month, Grant, I got to make 10000 right now before the month's over to keep my doors open. How can I do this? I happened to get this message during a Sunday football game. So I asked him, dude, are you watching the game right now? He texts me back, yeah, yeah, sure am. What are you doing watching the game when you need ten grand? What are you doing taking a Sunday off to watch a football game? You should be out distributing flyers, spending every second of every hour trying to create income in excess of what you need. And by the way, you need a hundred grand, pal. You don't need ten. You need a hundred thousand. You don't need ten thousand because if you need ten thousand to keep the doors open and you go get it, you're broke again. Grant, Sunday's a day for rest. Oh boy, I shot back. Dude, are you kidding? It is for those that work the other six days and you hadn't been working. The Lord wasn't talking to the people who were short on funds, bro. Look, the Lord worked the other six days. That's why he said take the seventh day off. You ain't been working. So turn off the game, get off your couch, and go get the money you need. Quit being a middle-class slave and go create the income you need to secure your wealth and your financial freedom for yourself, your household, and your company. I hope he got the message. I think he did. Look, my client is at risk because he's been operating based on what he needs and therefore is just getting by. Unfortunately, 
This middle-class mentality will not create financial security. It's average thinking. The banks dried up on this guy. He couldn't depend on credit anymore for his cushion. And he can now only depend on his actions. This is the problem with many members of the middle class. They go after what they deem necessary rather than ever going at something big. Anything that starts with middle can't be good. Most people believe that, that a comfortable middle class life includes home, clothes, a few cars, vacation time, maybe an upper management job, and some money in the bank. However, depending on the period in history to which you are referring to, the term the middle class has had a variety of meanings, many of which have been and still are quite contradictory. It has referred to the class of people between peasants and nobility, whereas other definitions suggested the middle class had enough capital to rival nobles. What's my point? Look, there's a lot of misunderstandings on what it even means to be middle class. We've clearly come a long way from middle class being peasants or nobles or middle class being a rival to the nobles. But which one is it now? For example, in India, the middle class is considered to be those who reside in an owner-occupied property, whereas a blue-collar job makes you middle class in the United States. And in Europe, that makes you a member of the working class. An important distinction that I'd like to make is my own reference to the middle class as a mindset rather than an income level. Someone who makes a million dollars a year may still adopt middle class thinking and actions. It is more of a mentality that creates the trap that will cause you to fail. The middle class is in a large part a goal that will not provide you with what you truly want. It is middle, normal, or average, synonymous with terms we've already deemed as highly unattractive and unworkable. Come on, man. Middle don't mean extraordinary, right? But what does middle mean to most people nowadays? In February 2009... Authoritative weekly publication, The Economist, announced that over half the world's population now belongs to this group, the middle class, as a result of rapid growth in emerging countries. The article characterized middle class as having a reasonable amount of discretionary income and not having to live from hand to mouth as the poor do. It was defined as beginning at the point where people have roughly a third of their income left for discretionary spending after paying for basic food and shelter. Dude, that makes most of us poor, not middle class. However, almost no member of today's middle class has near one-third of his or her income left for discretionary income to spend. This group is currently being hammered, hammered by something called the middle class squeeze, a situation in which increases in wages fail to keep up with the cost of living for these same middle-class earners. At the same time, the phenomenon of the middle-class squeeze, where wages don't keep up, it fails to have the same impact on top wage earners. Add to that the fact that much of the supposed middle-class's wealth has come from assuming debt and home equity calculations that were mere ink Dude, it wasn't wealth. Persons belonging to the middle class frequently find that their dependence upon credit worsened by the collapse of the housing market prevents them from maintaining a middle class lifestyle, making downward mobility a threat to counteract aspirations of upward mobility. You want to go up, right? You want to do better? Look, that's the gravity and resistance I talked about earlier. It's the unexpected conditions that I mentioned. This group then experiences middle-class income declines as jobs are lost. Jobs are lost, they quit paying people more money. 
For the first time in our history, we're seeing more men lose jobs than women because higher paid males are being let go in favor of keeping their counterparts. At the same time, the prices of necessary items, energy, education, housing, insurance, food, continue to increase while wages are flat or decrease. This kind of squeeze always affects the largest groups of people in any given population. The wealthy don't depend on income and debt, and the poor receive help for which the middle class aren't qualified. For most people, being middle class means having a reliable job with fair to good pay, consistent health care, a fairly comfortable home in a nice neighborhood, a good education, whatever that means, time off for vacations, this is highly valued, and money in a 401k that you have no control of and that hopefully is growing by some fat cat on Wall Street that might allow for your decent retirement one day. Hope you don't live too long. Yet all this, taken for granted for so long, is now in complete turmoil. Middle class is being squeezed. I mean, I don't even know if you call it a squeeze. It's more like the middle class hammer. And hopes at best that you might hold on to recover your past achievements, maybe your inequity position on your home, maybe one day makes it up and you're not underwater. Look, this group's average income is steadily decreasing. Its net worth is decreasing. If that's desirable, I'm confused. Its members' jobs are in jeopardy, and their savings and investments have been put at risk. The greatly appreciated vacation of the past will probably be more like a visit to the neighborhood park. What is the point of me telling you all this? Ask people in the middle class if this feels secure or desirable. And although they may claim that they're grateful not to be poor and feeding hand to mouth, they will likely tell you they feel more like a member of the working class than the middle class. Ask a guy making two fifty a year if he feels rich. Consider as well the fact that the dollar is worth less today, 40% less than it was worth just not long ago, and will be worth even less tomorrow. Someone who's making sixty grand a year pays 15000 in taxes. If that person's lucky, he or she has 45000 left over, which is really only worth what? Maybe thirty grand or less to handle homes, schools, insurance, food, car payments, fuel, medical emergencies, vacation savings. Sound desirable to you? Middle class was a dream sold to countless Americans as a good goal to go for. Yet in reality, it is really only close to good and probably better described as a mousetrap with a big fat piece of cheese on it. I contend that the middle class is the most suppressed, restricted, and confined socioeconomic demographic on this planet. Those who desire to be a part of it are compelled, hypnotized, Convince and persuaded to think and act in a certain way where just enough is the reward. The idea that one would only have enough to be comfortable or adequately satisfied is a concept that has been sold by the educational systems, the media, politicians to convince entire populations of people to settle instead of strive for abundance and success. However, it only takes a bit of waking up to discover the middle class is a promise without fulfillment. Today, the wealthiest 5% of people control $80 trillion. You understand that? The wealthiest 5% of people on this planet control $80 trillion, which is more money than has been created in the history of mankind. If you knew that you had the same energy, same creativity, same intelligence, same go-farness to make it to the top 5%, would you give it a try or would you go for the middle class?
exercise. Hey, before you read this chapter, what was your understanding of the middle class? Two, what are the income levels of the middle class? Three, what does middle class now mean to you? Chapter 12, obsession isn't a disease, it's a gift. The dictionary defines the term obsessed as the domination of one's thoughts or feelings by a persistent idea, image, or desire. That doesn't sound bad to me. Although the rest of the world tends to treat this mindset, obsession, like a disease, I believe it is the perfect adjective for how you must approach success. To dominate your sector, your goal, dream, or ambition, you must first dominate your every interest, thought, and consideration. Obsession is not a bad thing here. It is a requirement to get where you want to go. In fact, you want to be so fanatical about success and the creation of success that the world knows you will not compromise and will not go away. And until you become completely obsessed with your mission, no one will take you seriously. Until the world understands that you're not going away, that you're 100% committed and have complete and utter conviction and will persist in pursuing your project, you will not get the attention you need and the support you desire. In this context, obsession is like a fire. You want to build it so big that people feel compelled to sit around in admiration. And as with a fire, you have to keep adding wood to sustain the heat and the glow. You obsess over how to keep your fire burning or it will turn to ashes. To create a 10x reality, you have to follow up every action with an obsession to see it through to success. You need to stay seriously motivated to take 10x actions every day. Though people take action constantly, we know that much of this isn't the kind of action that's actually going to get them anywhere. Most people are doing nothing or have already given up, and others retreat in an attempt to avoid failure and negative experiences. Huge segments of the population are merely operating at normal levels, average levels, in order to get by and fit in. Each of these groups lacks the obsession to see their actions all the way through to success. Most people only exert enough effort for it to feel like work, whereas the most successful follow up every action with an obsession to see it through to a reward. If you become obsessed with your idea, your purpose, your goal, you will become equally addicted to the idea of making it actually work. Anyone who makes it his or her mission to create long-term positive 10x survival will have to approach each moment, decision, action, each day with this level of fixation. After all, if your ideas do not excessively preoccupy your own thoughts, then how can you expect them to ever preoccupy the thoughts of others? Something has to absorb your thinking every second of every day, so what will it be? Be obsessed with something. Make your dreams, your goals, and your missions, your mind's actions, dominant concern. The word obsessed tends to have negative connotations because many people believe that obsession with something or someone is usually destructive or harmful. But show me one person who has achieved greatness, extraordinary success without being obsessed at some level. I dare you. You simply cannot do it. Any individual or group that has accomplished something significant was completely obsessed with the idea of making it happen. Whether it was an artist, musician, inventor, businessman, businesswoman, change agent, philanthropist, a forward thinker. Look, their greatness, the products they created, was a result of fixation, obsession, even an addiction to making something big happen. 
Someone once asked me, have you always been obsessed with success and work? I answered, absolutely not. At first, in the very beginning, I was completely obsessed until about the age of 10. Then I let go of it and didn't become so obsessed until again when I was 25. I've remained that way to some greater or lesser degree ever since the age of 25. And, and I must tell you, I regret those years I was not obsessed with my dreams and my goals. I can tell you that my life has gone much better since I've been passionate and always went better when I was completely obsessed by my dreams and my goals. Even when things went wrong, I was better off being obsessed. I recently saw a television interview with the Israeli president, Shaman Perez. Mr. Perez was 87 years old at the time and had done 900 interviews in the previous 18 months. His obsession with his mission makes him seem youthful and energetic despite his age. Even those who may not believe in his mission have to admire his commitment to his mission, which is evidenced by his claim that work is better than vacation, and it is important to have a purpose to wake up to each day. Countless truly successful people agree with the sentiment that their careers do not feel like work, but rather something they love to do. That is obsession at its best. Children are a wonderful example of inherent obsession. They are almost instantly fixated with any task they encounter, learning, mimicking, discovering, playing, and utilizing their full energy for whatever captures their interest in the moment. Unless some part of their development has been delayed or hampered, no child approaches his or her activities without thorough obsession and complete preoccupation, fixation with whatever it is they desire in that moment, be it a fat pacifier, a toy, food, daddy's attention, or an urgent need to be changed. In this way, we see how obsession is a natural human state. That's right. Obsession is a natural human state. It doesn't become a problem until a parent, caretaker, or teacher, and eventually society as a whole, begins suppressing this fixation or obsession. They often make the child feel as if his or her commitment to a goal, any goal, in fact, is wrong rather than something natural and very right. At this point, many children begin to assume that their interests, their intense interests in life, and their discovery for life, their innate commitment to being fully engaged is somehow wrong or unnatural. They have essentially been bullied by others who have long ago given up on their own obsessions in order to change the behavior of those still obsessed. This is when a person moves from higher levels of commitment and action and drops down into lower average levels of actions. Lest you think I'm talking about something with which I have no personal experience, I should tell you that I've just had my first child, and I will admit that although her obsessive nature rears its head at inconvenient times for me, I never want to suppress or stop that. It is my fervent wish that my daughter becomes obsessed with whatever her dreams are that she never gives up achieving those dreams and then spends the rest of her life improving on them. I love the feeling that comes with being obsessed about an idea. I admire seeing others who are that fanatical and committed. Who isn't moved by people or groups that go after things in which they believe with their complete heart? Or who are so consumed by their ideas that they wake up to their dreams each day, work on them all day long, and then go to sleep and actually dream about them throughout the night? As soon as other people are able to see your intention, your conviction, and commitment in the passion of the individual's thoughts, ideas, and movements, they will get out of the way. I suggest that you become obsessed with the things you want. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lifetime being obsessed with making up excuses as to why you didn't get the life you wanted. It is unfortunate 
that people with this kind of voracious obsession and fierce drive, this fixation for success, are somehow categorized as off-balance, work-addicted, obsessive in a bad way, and a whole litany of other labels. Just imagine, what if the world saw a person's unwavering passion, undying obsession, and a bonfire-like desire to see their goals all the way through as gifts rather than as defects or diseases? Wouldn't we all accomplish more? Why do people have to turn a passion for excellence and an obsession to succeed into something negative? It's interesting, however, that once the obsessed finally do become successful, they're no longer labeled as crazy, but instead become geniuses, exceptions to the rule, and extraordinary. What if the world admired, expected, and even demanded that we each operate every single day with an obsessive focus on our goals and dreams? What if we actually punished the people who didn't act with obsession, passion, commitment, and we then rewarded those who saw their projects all the way through to success? Our society would be overwhelmed with inventions, solutions, new products, and higher levels of efficiency. What if the world encouraged obsession instead of judging it and mislabeling it? What if the only thing standing in the way of your greatness was that you just had to go after it obsessively? persistently, and as though your life depended on it? Well, it does. Would human beings have made it into space if a team of people hadn't been obsessed with making it into space? Can a country become great without its leaders being obsessed with greatness? Would any remarkable leader water down his or her dreams and encourage the team to adopt a take-it-or-leave-it attitude? Look, of course not. Do you want your team drugged, lethargic, and robotic are obsessed with positive outcome and victory. Never cut anything. Never dilute greatness. Never pull back on your horsepower and never put a limit on your ambition, your drive, and your passion. Demand obsession of yourself and all those around you. Never make it wrong to be obsessed. Instead, make it your goal. Obsession is what you will need to set 10x goals and then to follow them up with 10x actions. Remember, as well, that making your goal too small won't allow you to gather the right fuel or take the right amount of action to break through the resistance competition and changing conditions. Nothing great will ever happen without someone becoming obsessed with the concept and then staying obsessed while approaching each task, each challenge, and each moment as vital, necessary, and a must. The ability to be obsessed is not a disease. It's a gift. Exercise. I want you to write down the names of three people that you know have been obsessed and then later did something great. Number two, what good thing do you need to be obsessed about again in your life? Number three, why is it better to be obsessed than not be obsessed? And number four, what goal would cause you to become obsessed? Chapter 13, Go All In and Overcommit. Now that I hopefully have rehabilitated your opinion about the nature of obsession, let's discuss what we have to do to get you all in on every action and fully commit to every opportunity. You know, most people are familiar with this all-in concept as a poker term. It's what takes place when a player puts all of his chips at risk and either gets knocked out or doubles up. Though I'm not talking about money or chips here, I'm referring to a much more important bet. Your efforts, creativity, energy, your ideas, and persistence. 
Massive action is not like a poker table. You never run out of action chips in life. You never can use up all your energy and effort by committing yourself fully. The most valuable chips you have are not money. It's your mindset, your actions, it's persistent and creativity. See, you can go all in with energy as many times as you want. Because even if you fail, you can keep going all in. Most of society discourages the all-in mentality because we are taught to play it safe and not put everything at risk. We're encouraged to conserve and protect ourselves from losses rather than to go for the big payoff. Look, the giants on this planet are willing to make the big plays. They're willing to go all in. This mindset is yet again based on the myth that your energy, your creativity, and your efforts are material things with limited quantities that can't be replaced. But it's not true. There are certain things in life that do have limits. But you don't unless you impose limits on yourself. It's vital that you get your head completely reworked about taking action and that you understand there is no limit to how many times you can continue to take new action. Look, you can fail or succeed as many times as you want and then do it over and over again. Also, you can't ever hit it out of the park if you don't initially make contact and swing for the fences. And you will never hit it big if you don't discipline yourself to be all in when you don't take action. We have all heard the fable of the tortoise and the hare. The implied lesson, of course, is that the tortoise wins because he plods along and takes his time, whereas the hare rushes, becomes tired, and misses his opportunity to win. We're supposed to derive from this beautiful little fable that we should become tortoises, individuals who approach our goals steadily and slowly. If there was a third player, however, in the fable, who had the speed of the hare and the steadfastness of the tortoise, he would smoke them both and have no competition. See, the fable would then be called smoked. The suggestion here is to approach your goals like the tortoise and the hare by attacking them ruthlessly from the beginning and also staying with them throughout the course of the race until finality. Remember, there are no shortages of how many times you can get up and continue. There's no failure unless you quit. It is impossible for you to use up or exhaust all your energy. It is impossible for you to exhaust your creativity. It is impossible for you to run out of ideas. Look, you can never lose the ability to come up with new dreams. There is no shortage on this. You'll always be able to create more energy, to think creatively, to look at a situation or event differently, to give someone another call, to use another tactic or act with more persistence. There will always be another hand for you to play. There will always be another day and another chance. If the bank you are working with continues to refill you with new supplies of energy, creativity, and persistence, then why not go all in on every hand? Entrepreneurs, and especially salespeople, suffer most when they fail to go all in, a topic discussed in my first book, Sell to Survive. Many sales professionals give themselves much more credit for trying to close the deal than they actually deserve, and they think they're doing so much more often than they actually are. In reality, most salespeople never even ask for the order the first time, much less five, six, or seven times. My company was recently hired to conduct a mystery shop campaign that validated this. We did this work for an international company to identify where the breakdowns in their sales process were occurring. We were trying to collect information on where the franchises needed the most help. We visited more than 500 locations to see what percentage of the time the sales force was able to position the client to even ask for the order the first time. To the company's amazement, 63% of the locations shopped never even presented the client with a proposal to purchase, much less ask them to buy. 
This company was about to spend millions of dollars on customer satisfaction and product training programs, when in reality, this is not their problem. The franchises and their sales team feared failure and rejection and were not even playing in the hand, much less going all in. Look, if a client comes to you and you get a chance to get in front of a client and talk about your product, but never then present a proposal to that client, I assure you, you will not get the business 100% of the time. Society has successfully taught most of us to play it safe rather than to go all in with every customer in every opportunity every time. This is perpetuated in the business world with things like closing ratios, which supposedly reflect the success rate of a salesperson. I'll tell you what I do. I'm willing to go for it with every customer every time and have the lowest closing ratio of everyone, but I'll have the highest production. All in, man. All in. I don't care how many times I bust out. I'll just reload my chips and play again. See, I can't go broke. Think about it. What's the worst thing that can happen to you if you just totally go for it? You may lose the customer, but so what? You still have unlimited resources to give it your all with your next client. You have everything to gain and you have nothing to lose. You simply have to rethink your approach. This brings me to the topic of overcommitting, another frowned upon and misunderstood issue in business today. How many times have you been told to undercommit and overdeliver? I have never heard anything so backward and ridiculous in my life. Let's say you're putting on a Broadway show that you're advertising to the public. Should you announce that you have a mediocre cast with just average singing ability? and then wait until opening night to over-deliver? Of course not. See, this phrase suggests, this phrase of under-commit and over-deliver, suggests that over-committing, or at the very least fully committing, somehow puts you in danger. If you're then not able to deliver as promised, supposedly, you'll leave the other party dissatisfied. Well, hey, why not over-commit in your promise and then exceed by over-delivering? Tell everyone about your spectacular Broadway cast and compel them to show up, overcommit, and overdeliver. I find that the greater the commitment I make to a client, the higher my level of delivery naturally becomes. It is as though I'm promising to both them and myself to reach a new level of what I can and am willing to do for them. The more energy I devote to the market, the more energy I devote to my clients or my family, the more intent I am upon delivering exactly what I said I was going to deliver. This, of course, goes back to acting with 10x effort rather than 1x effort. It's easy for someone to claim to be giving 110%, but then fail to fully commit in the first place, either because the person is playing it safe or they're afraid he or she won't perform to the level necessary. A common problem faced by most businesses is increasing appointments in order to present or show your product or idea to clients. The more appointments you could actually present to, the more appointments you could get, the more product you could show, the more successful you'd be. This is an experience that many businesses and individuals have. People who request an appointment, you're asking to get an appointment from someone, you're not willing to overcommit to the person who has to give up his or her valuable time in order to see you. Look, you need to make grand claims. You need to overcommit. You need to make extreme promises that will immediately separate you from the other masses of people that are trying to get appointments as well. And this will therefore force you to deliver at 10x levels. The only way to increase appointments and solve your business problem is to increase the number of people with whom you speak and then amplify the reason why this person should give you their time. The same goes for every step of the sales process. 
Whether it involves follow-ups, flyers, regular mails, emails, social media, phone calls, personal visits, events, meetings, or whatever action you're taking, dude, got to overcommit. Overcommit your energy, your resources, your creativity, and your persistence. Know that, that you're all in on every activity every time you take an action, every day you're in business. Now, you might worry, as so many people do, about being able to deliver. And that is certainly a problem. However, as we discussed earlier, you need new problems. There are signs that you're making progress and heading in the right direction. Remember, new problems means you're moving in the right direction. Learn to commit first and figure out how to show up later. That's right. Commit first all the way and then figure out how to show up later. You will. Most people simply never bother to perform and instead spend their time trying to wrap their heads around things that may never happen to them. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do when I get there? Don't worry about it. Commit first. Anyone who doesn't face new problems, but who instead grapples with the same old little problems his or her whole life isn't moving forward. Simply put, if you're not creating new problems for yourself, then you're not taking enough action. You need to face new issues and new dilemmas that will challenge you to find and create new solutions. Wouldn't it be nice if you had too many people to see at 2 p.m.? Or if you had a line outside your restaurant because there were so many people waiting for a table? Wouldn't those be good problems? You know, one of the major differences between successful and unsuccessful people is that the former look for problems to resolve, whereas the latter, the unsuccessful, actually make every attempt to avoid problems. So remember, overcommit. Be all in. And take massive levels of action, follow up by massive amounts of more actions. You'll create new problems, and I promise you, you will deliver at levels that will not just amaze your clients, but will amaze you. Exercise. What does it mean to you to go all in? Why do most members of society discourage going all in? What is the reason why salespeople fail? Fill in the following. If you blank commit and blank deliver, you'll make yourself grow because blank. And lastly, why do you want new problems? Chapter 14. Expand, never contract. As of the writing of this book, our country is still experiencing very serious economic stress. Unemployment numbers and financial uncertainty are reaching heights not seen since the Great Depression. During major economic contractions like these, the world becomes convinced to reduce, save, to be careful, and stay cautious. Although this mindset focuses on self-preservation and protection of assets, it is the very kind of thinking that will guarantee you never get what you want. And although the majority of the world has entered a state of contraction, small percentages of people and companies are still capitalizing by expanding. These people and companies understand that these times of tightening by the masses are unique opportunities to take from those who are taking a defensive posture because they're reducing their spending. Because contracting is a form of retreating, it violates the concept of the 10x rule, which demands that you continue to act, produce, and create in massive quantities, regardless of the situations or the economic circumstances. Now, I will admit that it can be very, very difficult and counterintuitive to expand while others are promoting that you should protect yourself. However, it's an approach you must adopt in order to take advantage of opportunity. Remember, 
regardless of what is happening in the world at any given moment, most people are not taking massive action. Although there are, of course, times when you must defend, retreat, and conserve, you should only do this for very short periods of time and only in order that you prepare yourself to reinforce and attack again. You must never contract as a continued business effort. Although we frequently seem to hear reports of companies that fail because they expanded too fast, the case for many of them probably wasn't so simple. Most companies fail not because they stay on the offensive, but because they don't properly prepare themselves for expansion and cannot dominate their sector. The idea of constant, unwavering expansion is counterintuitive. It's even unpopular. However, it will separate you from the rest of the pack more than any other single activity. The task of expanding when others are contracting should not be reduced to some simplistic concept. This is a very difficult discipline to apply in the real world. Yet once you get into the groove of making it your innate, natural method of responding, the ability to continuously, relentlessly attack any activity will give way to forward movement. Any disagreement with this comes because most people only attack to the point where they meet resistance and then they back off. It's kind of like challenging the schoolyard bully and then running away. It always turns out badly. If you approach trials in this way, challenges, the market, your client, and your competition, they're not going to believe that you're committed to a persistent attack. Therefore, they will threaten or criticize you, and then you're going to back off. Look, you'll figure in your own mind that it didn't work. But the only reason why it didn't work is because you didn't stick with your attack. You didn't stick with it long enough for the market, your clients, and your competition to submit to your effort. Repeated attacks over extended periods of time will always prove successful. You must implement the tactic of expansion, persistent expansion, regardless of whether the economy and your surroundings are encouraging. I say this because we live in a society that promotes contraction most of the time. And when it does support expansion, it's typically too late in the cycle. Hence, the recent real estate meltdown. News of contraction should serve as an indicator for you to do the contrary. You never want to blindly follow the masses. They're almost always wrong. Instead of following the pack, lead the pack. The way out is to expand, to push, to take action, to lead regardless of what others are saying and doing. I watched others in the same sector I work in start to cut their staff and their promotion dollars during the Great Recession, which served as a green light for me to augment my own forces. I didn't cut employees. I didn't cut promotional spending. Instead, I increased both. Even though I saw our revenue shrink like the rest of the world's, I opted to cut my own salary because the money wasn't there as an alternative and then redirected those monies to promote my business, to keep staff on, to build new products. This helped me to increase my footprint and take market share from the organizations that were retreating. In fact, I spent more money on advertising, marketing, and promotion in the course of the 18 months than I had in the previous 18 years. I realized how counterintuitive this was and is for most people. And I fully admit it was terrifying. It was scary. Every night I went to bed wondering if I was doing the right thing, second-guessing my every action. Yet I knew that if I could continue, if I could persist to keep pushing forward while they retreated, tremendous ground would be gained. 
Even more important than the money I spent were the demands I put on my staff at the same time, and especially the demands I started to put on myself to repeatedly expand the use of our most valuable resources, not money, but energy, creativity, persistence, and contacting our clients. By doing so, we immediately increased production outflow in every area. Phone calls out, emails out, e-newsletters, social media posts, personal visits, speaking engagements, teleconference, webinars, Skypes, telecom, everything. You, babe, we just poured it on. Over that 18-month period, over a year and a half, I then published four books, introduced four new sales programs, produced more than 700 segments of training material for a virtual training site that we created. I delivered 600 radio interviews. I wrote more than 150, probably closer to 200 articles or blog entries and made thousands, thousands of personal phone calls. While the rest of the world withdrew, we expanded on every front possible. Pretty much everyone in the world was being convinced that the only saving grace at that time was to save. And so they did. It's always intriguing to me that when people start saving money, they immediately begin saving everything else, almost automatically. This is very important to understand. It's as though the mind is unable to distinguish between saving paper bills or numbers in a bank, what you call money, and not also save creativity, save their energy, save their persistence, and save all their effort. They seem to do all at the same time. The whole world in this 18-month period of time, still going on today, the whole world started to hold back on expenditure of not just dollars, but their effort, while just a few people like myself, the obsessed, expanded. Who do you think comes out on top in those moments? People have asked me in my seminars how and why I decided to expand at a time where things were so uncertain. And my answer to them was always, look, I'd rather die in expansion than die in contraction. I'd rather fail pushing forward than fail in a retreat. Consider this yourself. At which of the four degrees of action introduced in Chapter 7 do you choose to operate? If you're going to die, which one do you want to die at? If you allow the economy to determine your choice and which action you'll take, you will never, ever be in control of your own economy. The solution? Get off your sofa. Get out of your home and make your way into the market. Get in front of your clients. Seek out new opportunities. Seek out old opportunities. Show them that you're advancing into the market. Only retreat briefly, only long enough to shore up your resources so that you can prepare for what? To expand again with more action, more energy, more effort, and more persistence. Your energy, efforts, creativity, and personality are worth more than the dollars that men create and machines print. And although spending money is the most common way for a business to expand, it is certainly not the only way. And it is not nearly as valuable as a human being or a group of human beings taking 10x actions consistently and persistently. Remember 10x, baby. You want to expand with the goal of dominating your sector and getting attention by taking massive action. Only then will you be able to expand your contacts, your influences, your connections, and visibility with the goal, with the obsession of creating new problems. You will then continue to expand until everyone, everyone, including your supposed competitors, knows you are the dominant 10x player in the market. And they will always associate your name with what it is they do. Exercise. What are some ways you could expand that only require only require energy and creativity, but not money? 
I mentioned that there's only one time when you should contract. What was it? And for how long? When have you ever benefited from contraction? Has it ever benefited you? I want you to write those down. And lastly, when have you expanded your efforts and what results did you see? Chapter 15, burn the place down. Once you take 10x actions and start getting traction, you must continue to add wood to your fire until you either start a brush fire or a bonfire or, hey, burn the place down. Don't rest and don't stop ever. I learned this the hard way after achieving a lot of success and then resting on my laurels for a moment. This is a commonly made mistake. Do not do it. Keep stacking wood until the fire is so hot and burns so brightly that not even your competitors, not even market changes can put the fire out. Your fire has to continue to be stoked, and that means more wood, more fuel, and in your case, more actions. Once you start operating like this, it will become almost second nature to continue because you're going to be winning. You're going to continue with new actions. It's easiest and most natural to continue taking massive actions when you're winning. And winning is only possible with more massive actions. When you begin to see things heat up, you'll quickly become aware, even obsessed with the possibilities before you, and will start to see new levels of positive results. Your actions will start to perpetuate themselves like a flywheel that, once it gets going, continues going by itself. Newton talked about the law of inertia, an object in motion continues to stay in motion. Hey, keep taking action until you can't stop your forward momentum. You might even find yourself operating on less sleep, less food, because you're literally subsisting on your adrenaline generated by your victories. It will be about this time that people will start offering you their admiration and then their advice. Now, be particularly aware or wary of those who suggest that you've done enough or who advise you to take a little rest or, hey, it's time to take a vacation. Now is not the time for rest and celebration or vacations. It's time for more action. Andy Grove, one of the Intel Corporation's first employees, coined the saying, only the paranoid survive. And although I'm not recommending that you spend your entire career in a state of paranoia, I do believe that you must stay committed to taking action. Even after achieving success along the way, continue to take more actions in order to achieve and exceed your goals. The time to celebrate or take vacations will come. Right now, you must keep adding wood until the fire's burning so hot that no one and nothing can put out your success. One of the problems with success is that it demands continuous attention. Success tends to bless those who are most committed to giving it the most attention. Success is somewhat like a lawn or a garden. No matter how green it gets or how beautiful the flowers, you must continue to tend it. You have to keep mowing, trimming, edging, 